0: And uh, it's great to be in Edinburgh. It's a lovely city, isn't it? Beautiful city. Uh, But imagine for a moment if we were able to get hold of a time machine and bring some unsuspecting individual back from, say, 60 years ago and set them down in the middle of the Royal Mile in 2017. Uh, What what kind of things do you think uh, would surprise them and disorientate them? Um, Traffic, technology changes to habits and fashions. There'll be all sorts of things that were different uh, now than 60 years ago. There are no horses on the streets now. Um, There are trams now, but I think there were trams probably 60 years ago, and then they went, and then they came back again. So that might not be a surprise. Uh, They might be surprised that hardly anyone is smoking compared to 60 years ago, uh, but then they would see the price of a packet of cigarettes, and they would uh, understand why. Uh, Cyclists in helmets and tight clothing, that would be a surprise. Uh, Credit cards, pizza, that wasn't here 60 years ago. Body piercing, is that some kind of punishment they might say? Sunday trading, mobile phones, Um, flat whites brewed by hipster baristas. What what would that mean uh, 60 years ago? Milk in supermarkets and many more things that we have got used to but were unimaginable back then. But all of those things would pale into insignificance compared to another change that has taken place in the last 60 years, and that is, of course, the sexual revolution. Whether it's the purpose of sex, the nature of marriage, the acceptance of divorce, abortion, pornography, and homosexuality, the place of children, parenting, and the family, Roles in the home, dating, cohabitation, all of this has changed dramatically in the last 60 years. But I think even those things would not be the greatest shock of all because all those things are actually symptoms of an even more profound shift that has gone on. What would cause our time traveler the greatest shock and disorientation is this, that we are no longer sure what it means to be men and women. The distinctions have become muddled, the boundaries blurred, so that gender, according to our culture, is fluid and malleable, it is skin deep, indeterminate. As Emma Watson authoritatively explained to the United Nations a little while ago, it is time that we perceive gender on a spectrum, not two opposing sets of ideals. And for anyone who takes the Bible seriously, this change matters. It matters because of people. Things that the Bible tells us are at the heart of human life and human flourishing, and the foundation of a stable society are under attack. And you know as well as I do the kind of harm that comes to us all in some ways when the the stability of society is attacked in this way, particularly the harm that comes to children. It also matters because of the glory of God, as we've seen in our first two passages today. And it might just be the case and you can go and think about this and, and uh, discuss it uh, when I'm long gone down the M6, uh, along with all the other difficult issues that I've left uh, uh, the elders to, uh, to, to, to think about. Um, with you, You can think about this. It could be the case that this is the great issue of our day for which we must contend. Like the deity of Christ in the fourth century, justification by faith, in the 16th century, the authority of the Bible in the 20th century, just maybe the primary way Satan will attack the church in our time is through the collapse of gender distinction and the associated sexual and relational chaos, the destruction of family life that follows. Well, there's a thought uh, just to throw out and think about. But whatever you make of that, any thinking Christian must ask, what is our response to this disorder and chaos? Is there anything we can do to turn back the tide? What should we do? Uh, should we organize something? Should we uh, lobby politicians? Should we do something in the media? What, what is it that we should do? Well, I wanna suggest that the answer is right here in 1 Corinthians 14. Because the answer now, just as it was in the first century, is, amazingly, the ordinary life of a gospel-shaped church. Ordinary and unimpressive, yet extraordinary and powerful. Because as we saw in the last session, only the local church, shaped and built by the gospel, can hold up to a fallen world the order that God will one day bring to a restored creation. So let's get into the passage and let me mention three things that will help put this passage into the context of the letter. Firstly, it's all about the church. The first thing we need to see is that Paul's great concern in chapters 11 to 14 is what happens when the whole church gathers. The word church, ecclesia, occurs 22 times in the letter and 13 of them are in these chapters. More significantly, is a repeated use of a particular phrase that Paul uses. Just have a look on the screen behind me. He says 1117, when you come together. 1118, when you come together as a church. 1120, when you come together. 1133, when you come together to eat. 1423, so if the whole church comes together. 1426, when you come together. Thank you, you can get rid of those now. The point is that this emphasis on what happens when the whole church gathers is significant. Paul's insistence on women not taking part in certain word ministries comes in the context of the great missionary task of building the local church, the spirit-filled community of God's people, which, as we saw in chapter 11, faces outwards into a disordered world. As men and women build the church together in a dynamic complementary partnership, the church itself models relationships restored by the gospel and points forward to the restoration of God's order for humanity in a new creation. So if you weren't here for the previous session, let me sum it up like this. When I was very little, uh, someone bought me one of those little snow shaker things from Scotland. And uh, you know know what I mean? There's little domes, there's water, there's a little picture, there's a little scene, and you shake it and the snow comes down. And I used to love looking at this thing. And I'll tell you what it had inside it. It had a bagpiper in a kilt. It had a little picture of Loch Ness Monster, and it had a snow-capped mountain. And this was years before I ever came set foot in Scotland, and I used to look at my little snow shaker, and I used to think, well, that's a little window of Scotland. And so when I came to Scotland, I was looking for the man with the bagpipes and the kilt, the Loch Ness Monster, and the snow-capped mountain. And, of course, you know, didn't see all of those things, um, but it gave me a little taste. And what we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the church is like my snow shaker for the new creation. As the world sees the local church... They are meant to see something very, very significant, something about what the gospel does to restore people's relationships that points people to the new creation. So I looked at my Snowshaker and I thought, wouldn't it be great to go to Scotland? People are meant to look at the local church and say, wouldn't it be great to be in a reordered world uh, where the gospel has brought relationships back as God intended. So that's the first thing. It's all about the church. Secondly, it is about the word of God. It's about the word of God. Now we're looking here at a difficult chapter in some ways because Paul is having, giving us an argument uh, where he's comparing the value of tongues and prophecy. But I want us to get the, the kind of a gist of the argument uh, right from the beginning. So have a look how he begins it in verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 1 of, of chapter 14 where he says, follow the way of love And eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And he's still speaking about this in verse 39. So have a look at verse 39, uh, right towards the end of the chapter. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Paul has a bias in this chapter uh, for prophecy over tongues. And it's because... Prophecy is intelligible, whereas tongues is not. So look at verse 2. The tongue speaker, verse 2, does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. While everyone who prophesies, verse 3, does speak to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. In the rest of the chapter, Paul then demonstrates that truth. He demonstrates the powerful effect of speaking intelligible words for the church. In 6 to 19, he shows how believers are built up through prophecy into an inclusive, thankful maturity. In verse 20 to 25, he shows how unbelievers will be converted through the clear, united witness of the church's prophecy. A church in which everyone is pursuing the private experience of tongues, verse 23, is a place of alienation and exclusion. It is not a welcoming place, but the church filled with intelligible words in which the faith, love and hope of the gospel are made known is a welcoming place where even the unbeliever can come in, hear the gospel and be converted. And therefore it is this word ministry in the church which is going to build The church upwards in maturity in Christ and outwards in in evangelism. So it's about the church being a model for God's new order. And it's going to be built by the word. But look at the third emphasis that we need to tune into. Is that it's not about you. I think if Paul had worn a t-shirt when he turned up to Corinth... That would have been the slogan emblazoned across his T-shirt. It's not about you. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months and I think he would have worn that T-shirt for the whole time. And I say this because throughout the letter, Paul is trying to shift the Corinthians attitude from self to others. You can read 1 and 2 Corinthians and you can see if that's true. He's trying to shift their attitude from self-promotion and competition To other person centered love revealed in the gospel. And he says it's by thinking about the other person that you're going to get the ministry done and the church is going to be built. That's why he begins the chapter, verse 1, with this phrase follow the way of love. Uh, The word follow there is, is literally pursue, persecute, hunt after is the word. So this follow the way of love is not some kind of vague philosophy. But it's a, a clear challenge to adopt a particular posture and to actively pursue the good of others when it comes to building uh, the church together, as Christ did for you when he gave up all his rights for sinners on the cross. Pursue the way of love. It's not about you, is his message. So it's vital to see that this controversial passage about women's silence comes in that active missionary context. Paul is calling every church member, men and women, to an eager and deliberate pursuit of ministries which build others through intelligible speech combined with loving self-restraint so that the word of God can be clearly heard. So that as the world looks into the church, they can hear the word of the gospel. And God's good order is going to be established and his glory made known in the world. Well, with that introduction, let's turn uh, over the page and let's uh, begin to look at our passage. And he begins with a principle, uh, which is what to do when the church is gathered in verse 26. The phrase... In verse 26, when you come together is the last time that expression is used in the letter. He's reaching a conclusion to his church gathering material and he wants to tie together everything he's said so far about what happens in church with a unifying principle. So look at the first part of verse 26 again. What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction. A revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. It's rather tricky to know how to read that, isn't it? What kind of tone Paul would have taken? Is it prescriptive? Is Paul laying out all the things that must happen? So he's saying, when you come together, I want everyone to have a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, and so on. Well, I think that's unlikely because it's easy to think of other elements that elsewhere Paul would want to happen in church, such as prayer, generous giving, perhaps the Lord's Supper. So I think this is not a prescription of what must happen. Alternatively, is it proscriptive? Is he criticizing them? Is the emphasis on everyone? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, everyone has a word of instruction. And perhaps he's saying... You know, you're so full of yourselves, you Corinthians, because everybody has something to say. No wonder there's chaos. Well, I don't think that's right either. Back in chapter 1, Paul thanked God that he had enriched them in every way in all their speaking and knowledge. And that they did not lack any spiritual gift. This is a church that is full of genuine spiritual life, which Paul is really thankful for. And notice that all five things in verse 26, a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation, all involve speech. That's the focus. So if it's not prescriptive, it's not proscriptive. I think verse 26 is simply descriptive. He's just describing what happens when this church gathers together. He's just stating a fact. And he's neither commending it nor condemning it. He's just saying when this church gets together everyone's got something to say. And that is not a surprise to Paul. After all, this church, as we saw earlier, is a miracle of God's grace. It's something that God has brought about uh, as a spirit-filled community to gather around Jesus Christ to wait for his return. And so no wonder they've all got something to talk about because something amazing has happened to them. Proverbs 14.4 is a favorite proverb in our house. I don't know if you know it. Proverbs 14.4 says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. It's a brilliant proverb for a busy household. To put it politely, if you don't want byproducts, don't produce. If you don't want to shovel manure, don't keep cows. It applies to all sorts of things. You know, if, you, if you don't want uh, dirty carpets, don't have small children. Uh, If you don't want to lose your hair, don't plant a church, especially in a place like Corinth. That's the point. And there's the problem. There is life in this church. The gospel has come to Corinth. But there's no structure. There is mess. So what's the solution in this situation? Everybody comes together, you've all got something to say, that's not a problem, that's expected. But how do you organize a church meeting? Who gets priority? Which people get to speak and which don't? What's the principle? Is it first through the door? Is it loudest, oldest, longest there? The one who grabs the microphone first? Or should everybody have a turn until, you know, church goes on all night and people start falling out of windows like in Acts 20? Now there might be one or two people here from some church backgrounds who will say, well, well the answer is liturgy. It might be that one or two of the staff here are thinking, no the answer is a roster. But look at what he says at the end of verse 26. Here is the organizational principle that is more fundamental than either of those things. What the end of verse 26 says literally, and I put this on the sheet, let all things be done for building. Let all things be done for building. In fact, this concept of building is, pro, is Paul's primary concern in the chapter. This is why he wants them to remember that it's not about them, so they can build others up. This is why he doesn't want people to speak in tongues so much as prophesy, because he wants the intelligible words to build others up. Our problem is that the translators always insist on adding that little preposition up. It doesn't matter which version you use. Everything must be done so that the church is built up. Sometimes it's translated as as edification. Everything must be done for edification. The problem is building up and edifying tend to sound to our ears a little bit weaker and more watered down than the original. To build someone up sounds like you're basically trying to make them feel better. Give them happy supportive, positive thoughts. But the word is simply build. There's no up in the original. It's the same word that you would use if you were talking about building a house. And just as in English, those words are connected. You do some building, you end up with a building. So when Paul talks about builders and building, he had the same image in his head as we do. Bricklayers, stonemasons, construction workers, People who rolled up their sleeves, had big muscles, tattoos, drank lots of tea, shouted abuse at people from scaffolding. Apologies to any builders for that stereotype, but you get the idea. Because, of course, the building he's talking about is not individuals, but the church community. And that's the principle that will govern what happens when they meet. Does it build? Does it build the church? Does it build Christians up in maturity? Does it build the church out in evangelism? Well, if that's the principle that is running through this chapter, notice that he applies it all the way through the rest of the chapter. In verses 27 to 35, Paul applies this principle to three areas of the church meeting. As he deals with each in turn, he does it in a remarkably consistent way. First, he applies a limit or restriction to the use of that gift. He then provides some reasons explaining the restriction. And in each case, the purpose is to do with building the church by the word of God. The final and most striking thing to notice is that in each of the three cases, Paul insists on silence from some part of the church gathering. Now, how do you take that? This insistence on silence three times means that it's possible to imagine Paul like a a sort of slightly frantic school teacher shushing a class of naughty children who just won't shut up. So the Corinthians keep speaking, and he keeps saying, Shush, be quiet, be quiet. But let me give you a much better image. Paul is much more like a skillful conductor of an enthusiastic but disorganized orchestra. He knows that there is a great tune here somewhere, but the members of this orchestra need to learn to hold their peace. They need to listen to each other, sometimes put down their instruments, come in at the right time, watch the conductor for the music to emerge. This is the principle that he's applying then in these three sections. Well, he firstly applies it to tongues in 27 and 28. Paul concludes what he has already said about tongues with three restrictions. Have a look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. You can see all three of those restrictions there, can't you? The first restriction is that two or at the very most three people can speak, can speak. There's no should in the original. The second restriction is that they must speak one at a time. The idea of a whole church babbling in tongues together is a kind of madness, which in verse 23 leaves the unbelieving visitor under the ignorance of the gospel. That is not church. That's not going to build. Thirdly, the tongue must be put into intelligible words, either by the tongue speaker, him or herself, or someone else. So that the clear sense of what they want to say to God is brought out and heard by everyone. Why does Paul want these restrictions on tongue speaking? Because he wants the church to be built. And it's intelligible words that build the church. If there's no interpreter, there's no corporate value of the tongues. And therefore they have no place in the church meeting. And so verse 28 is his first command to silence. Verse 28 if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. There's Paul the conductor at work. He wants silence from this area so that the word of God can be heard in the church and that word will cut through the babble of the world. Well, there's the first application of the building principle. The second application comes in the weighing of prophecy in 29 to 33. Now, it's as we turn to the subject of prophecy that we come to what I have found to be the most difficult part of of all of these three chapters. Uh, Some of us might have found uh, the childbearing in in 1 Timothy 15 uh, stretching, but I think this this business of prophecy uh, is really genuinely difficult, and the reason is because although Paul makes a great deal about prophecy in the letter, Nowhere does he tell us what it is. Well, what do we do in that situation? Well, I think uh, we do two things. We, we are slow to rush to neat and tidy answers. And we listen carefully to the context of what he's saying. And so when we do that, I think we'll see, in this chapter at least, that we can say three things pretty firmly about prophecy. That it's the non-authoritative, person-to-person, response to the teaching of the word that builds others up in maturity in Christ. Well, let's look at those three things one step at a time. Firstly, we can say very easily that prophecy is not authoritative. Have a look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down... The first speaker should stop, literally should be silent. So just as for tongues, prophecy is to be regulated and limited in the interests of order. And there's the second instance of that word silent. And this silence promotes the peace and order that God desires, verse 33. Most significant of all is that these prophecies must be weighed, verse 29. That is, they must be evaluated... Tested by others. And he doesn't specify the others here, presumably the other members of the congregation. And if you think about it, if the prophecies are to be weighed, there must be something that they have to be weighed against. And that something it is surely the word of God, the authoritative apostolic gospel. And if prophecy must be weighed against that authority, then clearly. Prophecy cannot have the same authority as teaching. Now, I think this is very important for the Corinthians to hear. If we read the whole letter carefully, we'll see that knowledge in Corinth was a problem. It was knowledge that Paul hints at in 8, 1 to 2, was puffing some of them up. And it would be strange if Paul were encouraging a church like that to be eager for prophecy... If prophecy were a quick route to fresh knowledge and revelation, which puts some above others. We were at a wedding a little while ago, in which the senior leader of a Pentecostal denomination made a prophecy over the couple. Promising that a number of things were going to happen to them in their married life. I did notice that all the things he promised them were very positive. Positive. And involved health and prosperity and many children and many blessings. And the man concluded his prophecy with a very confident, thus says the Lord. Well, I was thinking a little bit about uh, uh, this as we sat down for dinner. And guess who was placed next to him on the dinner table? I assume they thought we'd get on like a house on fire. And, of course, I took the opportunity to to politely ask him for a biblical rationale uh, for what he had done. Well, listen to what he said, and this is uh, exactly word for word what he said. He said, most Christians are sheep. Sheep are such dull, slow animals. All they can see is the grass in front of their noses. A long time ago, God told me that I am a giraffe and he did this with his hand. I can see what others can't see. And that's what my ministry has been about ever since. That is honestly, literally, what he said. I said, You're not a giraffe, you're a wolf. And God has told me to chase people like you away from his sheep. Well, that's what I said in the rerun of the conversation in my head. <laughs> I find I'm fabulously courageous in those reruns. (laughs) I think I mumble something about sheep being more biblical. The point is that this was the mentality of some in Corinth. And it will always be with us in some form. The claim to some higher and exclusive illumination. God has told me so that I needn't listen to you, but you must listen to me. I think we've always got to treat that kind of claim with great skepticism. That is never what Paul wanted for the churches. Rather he wanted the word of God, the apostolic gospel to be publicly taught, to be transparently owned by everybody. So whatever prophecy is in chapter 14, it's not authoritative, not in the same way that the apostolic gospel is. The second thing we can clearly see is that authority sorry prophecy is person-to-person response to teaching. See, if prophecy is not as authoritative as teaching, does that mean it's not true? Because as we saw this morning, truth and authority are linked together. Well, I think this answers it, that it's a person-to-person response to teaching. The other side of the coin of prophecy not being authoritative and being weighed against the apostolic gospel is that it must therefore be a response to that teaching. The primary thing going on in Corinth, as in every church Paul founded, was of course the preaching and teaching of the word of God. So he says in Ephesians 2, doesn't he, that the church is built on the, the, uh, the foundation of the apostles. And both. Uh, the Old Testament, and the apostolic gospel that he passed on to them, and which they were passing on to the next generation through preaching and teaching. So prophecy sits under that teaching and preaching in a responsive and supportive way. It's not in competition with it, like my giraffe friend, but the result of that teaching. And if you think about it for a moment, wouldn't it be strange if that never happened? What an odd kind of church it would be if everyone sat under the word and drank it in but never did anything with it. Where everyone sort of filled up on the word and bottled it up all themselves. But Paul wants those who hear the word to speak the word. This is always his intention. To use a phrase you may have heard before, he wants them to listen to the word not as a reservoir but as a river. He wants the word to flow through them. And that's what we see when, thirdly, we see what prophecy does. Prophecy builds others into maturity in Christ. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. That's how prophecy differs to tongues. Prophecy is clear because it's a person-to-person response to teaching. That's why Paul wants it. And he wants this whole church to be zealous for this ministry, which, because it is a response to teaching, produces the same things that teaching does. So just have a look through the chapter, uh, how, how interesting uh, and significant this is. Uh, in verse 2, teaching produces understanding, and so prophecy will produce understanding. Uh, verse 3, encouragement and comfort. Verse 6, knowledge. Uh, verse 11, meaning. Verse 16, agreement, verse 25, conversion. Interestingly, that's the only time in the New Testament when that language of worship is used in the context of a church meeting. It's when an unbeliever comes in off the street and he can hear the word or she can hear the word uh, that has been preached and that is then flowing out through the members of the church in some kind of informal or formal way and they bow the knee and they become a worshipper of Jesus. This is the ministry that Paul wants everyone to be zealous for. Well, let's uh, pause there for a moment and think about a few implications of this uh, for the way we do church. Reflecting on this has given me three questions that I want to be asking of the church I serve. Uh, So you'll notice I'm giving you questions, not necessarily answers. And the details will be worked out uh, differently in different contexts. But I'll mention some of the things that we do in our context. Firstly, I want to ask the question, does every member of the church share Paul's zeal for prophecy? When Paul says to the Corinthians that they should be zealous for prophecy, he's clearly thinking that the church cannot do without this gift. It's not going to be optional. This is how the church is going to be built. And that's because, as we have seen, this is the every-member word ministry that builds the church upwards in maturity and outwards in evangelism. And because it's building, rather than just building up, it's got to be more than chatting over coffee in a pleasant and affirming way. It means hearing the word yourself and then giving energetic thought on behalf of others so that they might apply that word and its implications for life. That, I think, is the heart of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. It is the word ministry that we can all exercise to build others into the church, to build them up in their faith and understanding in Christian maturity. It is that kind of conversational ministry that we have with each other to help each other repent of sin, to help each other to trust the gospel through hardships, to overcome doubt, to equip for ministry, to persevere through struggle, resist temptation, and so on and so on. So, imagine you're chatting to someone over coffee who tells you that the reason they haven't been in church for three or four weeks is because they've had essay deadlines. What do you do? Do you build them up? Or do you build them? Well, let's say you build them up. You sympathize with them, remind them it's not about works but about grace. So don't worry. Once the exams are over, they can really get back into it. Happy thoughts, support, encouragement, building up. You're chatting to another friend over coffee. How's your week been? Terrible. There's this guy at work who mocks me for being a Christian. I'm looking for a transfer. What are you going to do? Are you going to build them up or are you going to build them Well, let's say we build them up. So you take your friend's side. Those colleagues have been nasty. You should take the transfer. Your friend feels better. What might it mean to actually build the person that you're talking to in maturity in Christ in those situations? Perhaps in the first conversation, real building might take the form of a gentle rebuke. Asking questions about why they put exam success above faithful church membership. Trying to expose the idolatries in their heart. And the ungodly use of time and so on. That's building into maturity. Or the second conversation might go like this. I'm I'm so sorry to hear the office is a tough place to work. But uh, do you remember what we were learning in Matthew 5 a few weeks ago when Jesus says... What was it? Blessed are you when people insult you. And after that he said, you are the salt of the earth. It must be really tough. But maybe God has put you in that office to love those people and bring the gospel to them. How about I pray for strength for you to be distinctively Christian when they persecute you? That's building, isn't it? And it's vital to understand that this building, this this energetic, intentional work of applying the gospel, applying the word of God to people's lives, is the responsibility of every Christian. And so that's my first question. Does every member of the church share Paul's zeal for prophecy? Do you share Paul's zeal for prophecy? Everyone. Well, the second question is a bit broader. Do the opportunities and structures exist in church to encourage both men and women to exercise this kind of ministry. Now I know from here and 1 Corinthians uh, sorry Ephesians 4:12 that the task of the pastor teachers is to help prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's what Ephesians 4 says. That is it's the responsibility of the pastor teachers to fill the word Sorry, to fill the church with a solid, stretching word of God that flows through every member to build the whole church. But I also want to give some thought to how and when that is going to happen. For example, at the church I serve, we want to utilize Sunday meeting times for this sort of ministry. So we have plenty of time for coffee. We have coffee before the meeting and after the meeting. We have a discussion question at the end of the sermon to encourage that culture of of talking about the word rather than the weather. Our church plant in Morecambe has gone one step further. They have coffee before the meeting. They have a break for more coffee in the middle of the meeting. And they have coffee at the end of the meeting. And they're probably all on the ceiling uh, by the end of it. But at least they've stayed awake. Another example is that we've freed up a whole Sunday afternoon uh, or evening every month in the calendar for a whole church prayer meeting. Uh, where the whole church gets together, sits around tables, and we pray for two hours. And everybody is expected to come. Members give their apologies if they can't come. We have tea and cakes in the middle, six to a table. We share news, testimonies, encouragement, struggles, discussion around tables in which we help each other to persevere in the Christian life and help each other in our mission. It's in that setting that we share the Lord's Supper, sitting face to face, encouraging each other in the gospel, After all, it is supposed to be a communion meal. Something else we found helpful is to make our Sunday school classes follow the adult teaching program. This encourages Bible conversations between age groups and generations. It also means that for a significant part of the week, a a significant proportion of the church family, uh, men and women, are preparing to teach the same passage and the preacher and the Sunday school uh, teachers get together and we can discuss it, help each other, and is by no means a one-way conversation. So I want to be asking, and this will be worked out differently in different contexts, do the opportunities and structures exist to encourage this kind of ministry to happen? The third question I want to be asking is, do the structures and culture of the church enable men and women to make their contribution as men and as women? So it's slightly different to the the second question, isn't it? The examples I mentioned help us to do ministry together in ways that enable men and women to complement each other, and that's vital. So I don't want people to think of men's ministry or women's ministry as single sex ministry. I want people to see the main Sunday gathering as the primary place where men's ministry and women's ministry happens. Because that is where you get to minister to and with the opposite sex. It's where we get to do ministry in a complementarian way. But at the same time I want to give some thought to how men and women can learn to do ministry as men and as women because we are different. So I think there will be a place for a single sex Bible study group, a mums group, a Saturday morning men's breakfast. And I'll want to make sure that genuine Titus 2 ministries are happening. That is, formal and informal settings in which older women can train, younger women at different stages of life, older men teaching younger men, and so on. But I want these single-sex ministries to contribute to the overall mission of the church by equipping men and women to serve together as men and women. Well, those are just a few small examples in our context. I'm sure there's many things that you're doing here, and there are many different ways of applying that principle. The point is to intentionally allow every member word ministry to flourish for both men and women to be able to build the church together. Well, if you turn over the page with me, we come to our final example of Paul applying the building principle which is women and the weighing of prophecy in verse 33 to 35. i picking it up in the second half of verse 33, which I think clearly belongs to the next paragraph. Let's read those verses again. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, clearly, there is a difficulty here which needs to be faced and was raised in the question time, which is the apparent contradiction between women's involvement in prayer and prophecy in chapter 11 and the silence here which seems so absolute. Well... With that and other questions in mind, let's look at this. And you'll see on the sheet, we're just going to take each line in turn. Firstly, as in all the congregations of the saints, this unusual phrase, literally the churches of the holy ones, reminds us of what we saw in chapter 11. The importance of getting church right. Remember if you were here, the angels are looking on as we do church, as God demonstrates the rebuilding of his creation order from chaos. It is in the congregation of the holy ones that men and women made equal but different in the image of God must build the church together, mutually respecting their God-given roles. So there's Paul's introduction uh, to this paragraph. Women, says the second line, should remain silent in the churches. What this silence is becomes clear from the work we've done on the context. There's no hint that Paul is speaking about certain women being distracting or asking embarrassing questions of their husbands as so many commentaries assume. He is dealing right up to verse 39 with the weighing of prophecy. He's still applying that building principle and he's still seeking the goal of order. Verse 33 and 40. Therefore, the other person-centered restraint needed for such order meant that two or three prophets were to speak and others were to weigh what was said. And here's another limitation for spirit-filled people to follow as they pursue the way of love. In the weighing of the prophecies, God wants the distinctions between men and women and the interdependence of men and women to be expressed, just as they were expressed visually in chapter 11. Therefore, the silence enjoined upon women women here is in keeping with the silence of the other two groups, the prophets and the tongue speakers. Here is Paul the conductor turning to a third part of the orchestra, and therefore this is not a stifling, gagging silence which goes against the will of the spirit-filled women, Rather, their silence in holding back from the weighing of prophecies is another exercise of true freedom in Christ, which means that their silence is as much a dynamic, deliberate and active contribution to the meeting as the speaker. This posture of silence is vital, for without the silence, the intelligible word cannot be heard. Like the rest in a piece of music, so the silence and distinction that women will bring to the weighing of prophecy enables the word of God to be heard and the gospel life demonstrated above the chaos of a noisy and self-promoting world. The third line says, for they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. The phrase, they are not allowed to speak, is not just repeating or reinforcing the phrase about silence above. It begins with the word for and so it's providing further explanation for that silence. The explanation comes in the second part of the sentence, but must be in submission. This ties the activity of speaking and not speaking to a relationship between men and women, which means that the submission of women here is a feminine posture and mindset which gladly affirms and encourages the leadership of men in the weighing of prophecies. The fourth line simply says, as the law says. What law is he talking about? Well, the law he's talking about is the Old Testament. He's already used this phrase in verse 21 to refer clearly (coughs) to Isaiah. And the law Paul refers to here must be the same one that he referred to explicitly in chapter 11, which is the creation account in Genesis 2. Again, once we see this, It changes what at first seems like a restrictive prohibition to an invitation to revel in the freedom to serve God as he created us to do, in a partnership of equals. And this true freedom built into creation is being restored by the gospel and expressed gladly in the Christian church. Look at the fifth line. It says they should ask their husbands at home if they want to inquire about something. Again, so many commentators give a negative spin to this phrase. The idea put forward is that there are some silly women in Corinth who are embarrassing their husbands by asking awkward questions about the prophecies, and they should ask them at home. But I think there's a much more positive way of looking at this. If the mindset of men and women is one of complementary partnership, both in the church and the home, This business of asking the husband at home is actually a way of extending and enriching that partnership in word ministry from church into the home and back again. Remember what we saw this morning in 1 Timothy 2, women are to learn. That is, although the weighing of prophecy is done by men in the congregation, the women are invited to continue the conversation at home And that family-based conversation will no doubt be fed back into the wider life of the church in time. So what sounds like a restriction is actually again an invitation to liberate the word ministry of women and strengthen the life of the whole church. Well look with me then at the final line of this paragraph for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. In the light of everything we've said, today so far, this clearly cannot be a cultural kind of disgrace, but it's the shame that results from overthrowing the God-given order. It is a shameful thing to disregard the differences God has made and to choose what we want to do rather than what God wants. It goes right back to Genesis 3 and the shameful disorder unleashed by Satan's lie, And the great achievement of a godless culture is to make what is shameful in the Bible look normal. But in the church, Paul wants this order restored by the word of the gospel. Broken, shamed men and women remade in the image of God through the self-giving love of Christ on the cross. That is the church's message. Well, we come then to the final warning and encouragement in verses 36 and 40. It's easy to overlook this section as a final flourish of apostolic authority to sort of force the Corinthians into obedience. But I want you to notice that Paul is actually trying to change their minds and ours. Clearly, 36 to 38 is a sobering warning which exposes the sin behind the sin. Verse 36, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? In other words, don't fall into the trap of the devil and reinvent the word of God to suit yourselves. Rather, true spirituality will involve submitting themselves to the words of God. Look at verse 37, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, Let let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. But it's not enough to leave them there in a position of resigned obedience. What Paul wants, and what I've been seeking to do today as we've studied these passages together, remember, is to remove us from reluctant acceptance to the delight of King David who says in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's what Paul wants to do. And so look how he ends. Verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. Paul's aim for the whole chapter has been that they might build the church together as men and women. Because that's the way of love. That's what builds the church. And he wants them to do it not in competition, but in a genuinely complementary way, which revels and delights in the differences between men and God. This means, in the end, the church will be the best place to live and grow as a human being, before the end comes because look how he ends in verse 40 he comes right back just in case we'd lost sight of it of why any of this matters but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way it is so easy to miss the impact of that last sentence isn't it he's talking about order and that takes us right back to everything we've seen today A little while ago, and it's uh, slightly hard to believe I'm going to say these words, something very interesting took place in the world of ballroom dancing. The Ballroom Dancing Association decided to ban same-sex couples from competitions. It's got nothing to do with the ethics of same-sex relationships. Uh, They were quick to assure the media that they were all for same-sex marriage and so on. But the Ballroom Dancing Association explained that you just cannot do ballroom dancing with two men or two women. It just doesn't work. Ballroom dancing is all about contrast. One light, the other strong. One leading, the other led. One lifting, the other lifted. They explained that it's all about differentiation and asymmetry, which leads to a beautiful unity and complementary performance. No one wants to pay good money to see two men dancing. Actually, some people do pay good money to see two men dancing. It's called wrestling. But that's not what they were talking about. Well, there is a strange insight in that, isn't there? And this was in the midst of the same-sex marriage debate, which, irony, was not lost on most Christians. As men and women act as men and women together, one as head, one as helper, they reveal the glory of God in a dance of differentiation and asymmetry. And no matter how much our world may confuse the differences and blur the boundaries, we must not be ashamed. God wants everything done in a fitting and orderly way in his church. When God's people submit to the word, there you see the order God intended at creation being re-established. And order means differentiation. Just as in creation God made light out of darkness, so in the congregation of God's holy people there is both silence and speech. There are men and women, all redeemed in Christ, fully and gloriously human, joyfully reveling in their freedom to be the people God intended them to be for the glory of Jesus. Well, why don't we bow our heads and pray.